I can't put it more simply than this. We need to put our resources into updating the Apple II. By taking resources from the Mac. It's failing. That's a fact. It's overpriced. There's no evidence that it's... I'm the evidence. I'm the world's leading expert in the Mac, John. What's your resume? You're issuing contradictory instructions. You're insubordinate. You make people miserable. Our top engineers are fleeing to Sun, Dell, HP. Wall Street doesn't know who's driving the bus. We've lost hundreds of millions in value, and I'm the CEO of Apple, Steve. That's my resume. But before that, you sold carbonated sugar water, right? I sat in a fucking garage with Wozniak and invented the future because artists lead and hacks ask for a show of hands. All right, well, this guy's out of control. I'm perfectly willing to hand in my resignation tonight, but if you want me to stay, you can't have Steve. Settle him out. He can keep a share of stock so he gets our newsletter. He'll have to sever his connection to Apple. I'm dead serious. I want the secretary to call for a vote. That's a clip from the 2015 film Steve Jobs, when Jobs is forced out of Apple by John Scully, the man he had hired to be chief executive of his company. The events at Apple have become a legendary story about how a founder hiring a chief executive to run his company didn't work out. But there is plenty of evidence to suggest that that is exactly the right thing to do if you want to grow a business. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and this is Business Leader, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. In this episode, we speak to Jeff Kaliski, the chief executive of Cedars, the largest private investment and crowdfunding platform in Europe. We speak to him about what it's like to replace a founder as chief executive, how they worked together to grow the business, and why crowdfunding is increasingly important as a way for businesses to raise money and scale up. Cedars was founded by Jeff Lynn and Carlos Silva and launched in London in 2012. In 2017, Jeff Lynn stepped aside as chief executive and hired Jeff Kaliski as his successor. Since then, Cedars has grown significantly. More than 1,000 businesses have raised £2 billion on Cedars from investors by using its crowdfunding platform. This includes well-known names like Revolut, the fintech app, and Chapel Down, the English sparkling wine brand. My role as Cedars was to step in alongside Jeff Lynn, the founder, which uh, I've now done twice before, and partnering with a founder on taking the business from, you know, having gone from zero to one to get from kind of one to 100 and and work alongside, uh, in this case, Jeff. Um, And that was really around the mission to democratize access to private company investing. So all of those cool businesses that people look at and say, oh, I wish I could have gotten into those deals rather than just the the venture capital industry. You know, what special privileges do you need to to do that? It's really kind of tearing down those walls and opening it up to anyone to invest. Obviously, they uh, need to have some understanding of what they're getting into, which we quiz for. But um, but it's really opening that door for anybody. And in terms of all the entrepreneurs out there, it's to give them access to two things, really. It's to give them access to capital to help grow. But one of the really big differences when what we do is actually turning a lot of their customers into investors and therefore brand advocates, ambassadors, evangelists to support their journey. You know, and I think particularly 
Uh, I mean, you have met a number of entrepreneurs. You know, it's a tough road. You know, there are a lot of challenges. And so if you can have an army of people out there uh, telling your story to others, you know, in social media terms, accessing their social graph, um, it's very powerful. And so a lot of people actually just use us for that dimension of what we do. One of the things I really want to ask you about is sort of your fascinating perspective on, on startup and scale-ups from, from both a Cedar's perspective, but but from your own and from the companies you've worked in. So looking at, you've you mentioned it there about the idea of going from one to a hundred. What skills does that take as a manager and a leader to work with a founder like you have and then build the business to the next level? I, I've certainly seen a number of different leaders do what I do and, and each brings uh, I guess, a different approach. If I were to try and summarize what's worked for me, certainly, there's two parts. One is really around that relationship with the founder and partnering very closely, understanding that there's a lot that went into the vision, the mission that got the business to where it is. And founders are often at a, you know, at a different stage. It might be a skill question. It might be a confidence question with the board or or, or the investors. But I've generally found that the energy, the passion of all the people in the company who have taken the business there is something you don't want to lose. And un unless you've ended up at a place that's had a, a maniacal founder and that's the problem as to the gap, it's, it's really been about the relationship to bring the most out of that understanding of what got the founder there to take forward. So one of them is, a, I guess, is humility in working with the founder. Jeff and I, in addition to the normal business rhythm of running Cedars, would meet several times a week for coffee um, and just talk. Just talk about what was what happened the day before, what's happening in the future. Why should you approach a problem in a particular way? And a lot of that is about understanding each other to be able to move fast later. It's that investing of time. Um, as a small story, for example, I would often get Jeff's a lawyer. And so things are generally thought through. Don't always agree with them, but they're certainly pretty thought through. Um, I would often sometimes get a, a, a message from him or an email or talking about something. And, and it was a very strong point of view would be put across. Um, and then it would finish with, you know, but I'm open for discussion. And it took a little, you know, the beginning, you know, I could interpret that as that's just there <laughs> for, for theater. And actually, he's not open for discussion. We had, you know, in those conversations over and over, it became clear that, no, no, absolutely, that was the truth. You know, that we would debate and sometimes disagree, but what we ended up with was always better than what either of us would have done on our own. And so that relationship, creating that that space to debate, that space to challenge one another, I have found absolutely invaluable. The second thing, is really about the team. I remember sitting down at dinner with Jeff and his leadership team before I started. And that was one of the questions I was asked. So, you know, so what are you going to do? Like, what, how are you going to make this better? And in some ways, what they're looking for often in that question is the silver bullet. What's the, what's the specific thing that you're going to do that changes our fortunes? And, you know, it's oft said, um, but a lot of it is about really turning a group of individuals into a team that is a united front that is pulling in the same direction that's exploiting their understanding from across the roles that they play into one force 
where there is trust among the team to talk about difficult things, where there's trust among the team to pick up things that are dropped by others, where there's trust among the team to challenge one another, you know, interviews that you do. And the fact that you are trying to have a second look at businesses looking back and draw lessons from is so beautiful to me because the discipline of management, it is a discipline like all the others, whether it's marketing or finance. And therefore it's understanding those tools and how to apply them, which is massively powerful. If I were to just bring one more thing, because I realize I've never been talking for a little bit, there was a, a course I took at London Business School uh, during my MBA called Managing the Smaller Business. There's a guy by the name of John Bates, one of those marvelous professors who, if you didn't come prepared, would absolutely rout you in, the cl- in front of the class. And one of the things that he said in Managing a Smaller Business was that most companies' failure to grow and become big is a function of management. It is an internal cause. And at the time I was thinking, that's stupid. Like like surely there are external forces. Sure, there's market forces. There's just big companies. And the combination of my lived experience in running businesses now and everything is he was 100% right. Absolutely. The majority of, of businesses who struggle to grow these are problems that usually can be solved by the team. They're internal choices. It's very rare that it's just, you know, external factors that, that are unavoidable, unremovable. In your experience, does it require an external voice alongside the founder eventually within the management team to make sure those decisions are made correctly? Is it essential at some stage in the growth of a business that a founder brings on someone, whether as a CEO or someone very senior who can challenge them and has skills that they just don't? I guess I have to say no, because I mean, some of the greatest companies had founders who became very successful, scaled businesses. I mean, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are the probably two easiest that you can look at, even going back as far back as, you know, Thomas J. Watson, who founded IBM, took the business to a pretty big height. So no, you know, there are founders who can make that journey. And part of that journey is about the skill set they have, but it's also about knowing when to let go of what to bring people in to su- to support the gaps and creating an environment where there's enough trust to that they can be allowed to run, that those leaders have agency. But I, th- I think that is probably more unusual to find those founders who are able to make that full journey on their own. You've touched on this a little bit, but what skills did you require to work with a founder in the way that you did to, to come into a business and work with the founder to meet their goals, not just act as if you were the founder yourself, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's a great question because I I often, I guess, think about it as as two paths. For me, very much, it's a case of stepping into the business because you see something, you see the thing that the founder sees. And it taps something in you, which is, I'm not just, like, I'm not just, yes, there's the math of being a CEO and you can help the business and do certain things. But every startup journey, every growth journey will have challenges and will have existential challenges, life-threatening challenges. And if you're going to get you and the founder through, if you're going to get the team through those existential challenges when your bank balance drops to near zero, when some external event you know, your investor has given you some challenges around cash that you need to overcome. The way you get through that, part of that 
has to come from sheer will. That has to be, you know, deep down courage and belief and desire to be alongside the founder through those difficult times because they're not going in. It's their baby. So that's, you know, they would want to know that you are right alongside them. So for me, it is absolutely a partner. It is you're joined at the hip, live or die, you know, full transparency. I guess for me, that's the way I derive the greatest joy from the journey. It, it is it is a journey which you know going into it, there will be times that you feel you can conquer the world. There will be times that you think this is it. We will now be the dominant player in this space. And there will be times that you think we're done. We're fucked. Like this is it. We're not making it. And sometimes you have those same thoughts in the same day. <laughs> and it's it's actually getting to a place where you realize getting through that becomes something that you you do you do it enough and you know the end of the road isn't external. It's something that you can you can get through. And so when you have a, a good relationship with the founder and that almost by connection, the team, you know, that's what kind of allows you to do that. So I think there's a you know part of my answer to your question is very much about as I see you coming in because you believe in the thing. And when I have, for example, gone through interview processes to join companies, I want to see the founder's joy when they're telling me their story. I want to feel the fact that they need to tell me the secret. And if I don't feel that, then then there's something missing. That's not to say that you don't have people who successfully step in you know, with founders who almost are going in with the math. They're going in like, you know, I'm I know we need to kind of make these cost cuts. There's there's a certain set of things to do to try and extract more value from the business. At times, maybe that's a bit more brutal. At times, it's probably something you see more with private equity investments than you do with venture capital investments. But there is that other kind of leadership which can be very successful for the business. It's just not me. You touched on this there a little bit, but what attracted you when you joined Cedars? What was it about the company and Jeff that made you think this was the right move? It's an interesting one because I have applied, I suppose, my skill set to a number of different industries, digital mapping, internet search, um, photography, uh, retail. Finance was not one that I had done before. And so when I spoke to Jeff, I kind of almost questioned him and challenged him on that. And his answer was actually what we're trying to do is disrupt the finance system as it stands. So I'm actually not looking for somebody who's going to bring old assumptions. I'm looking for somebody who is going to try and change how we think about finance to bring new ideas or new ways of creating greater adoption for what we do. I think that you know, the way Jeff articulated both the desire to make a difference, not just in the UK, but on a global plane, the fact that this was not a small problem we're talking about you know a multi trillion dollar market globally in private investing in a world where more money is going from public to private private companies are staying private longer but is still massively fragmented it is still unfair across you know the global landscape it's becoming better so the size of the problem was was exciting but i think one of the things that was particularly appealing is the impact beyond the business itself that effectively what we're doing is we are trying to help other founders who have visions who who are trying to change their own markets and all the employees who join those missions that's hugely appealing that that we can be part of an economy and you know small to medium sized businesses make up 
50% of the GDP of any nation, give or take. However, they make up between 60 and 70% of the employee population of any nation. And now you're talking about a real mission. Now you're talking about something which can have a, a ripple effect beyond just serving ourselves or the people on our platform. We're now stepping into a world where we're helping beyond that and using, if you like, the power of, of digital to connect a, you know, a broad spectrum of people to, to the businesses they want to support. And so we're beginning to see that. We've always seen it, but we're seeing it in spades now, for example, with sustainability, with clean tech, with clean energy. There are people who are investing in it because they just believe in that thesis. They believe in changing the world in that way. And we're opening the door for them to do that. So I think you know those two things, the size of the prize in terms of having a meaningful role to play in our economy, in society, if we can get this right, as well as, I suppose, the way Jeff thought about it and his passion for it really connected me to the business and wanted to be part of it. Crowdfunding is still a relatively new way for businesses to raise money, and it provides the opportunity for retail investors to back promising companies. Cedars was bought by Republic, a US investment firm, for $100 million in 2021. That deal has opened up new opportunities for Cedars to grow. If you think about it, in the UK, there are about 6,000 businesses a year that will, private businesses a year that will seek funding from 100,000 to 20 million, let's say. We have served 130 in the first half of the year. So percentage-wise, in terms of both the number of businesses and the absolute value, we're still, you know, in the sort of 5% range. And I'm not saying this is a game of getting to 100%, although one of the nice things about what we do is it's not an all or nothing thing. Most businesses will take investment from multiple sources. So for us, it's about being a complement to not a singular choice. And so getting to a larger market share of that you know, is, is in a really important part of, of our growth journey. But we, I, I fully expect us to tap into a much greater percentage of the market over time uh, you know, I will still go to the occasional dinner where I say occasional, it's not uncommon where people say, what do you do? Where are you from? And I talk about crowdfunding and it's like, you know, I met with a blank stare and we go into it, it's like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. And then we talk about EIS and it's like, what's EIS? And then, so, you know, as much as for us, you know, we live and breathe this, I think the reality is it's got a long way to go before it's normal. I mean, before it's the Amazon of investing in private companies, I think we've got a ways to go. And that also is part of what makes it exciting. From your perspective, you also get a great view of all these new startups and businesses out there raising money. And at the moment, what sectors uh, are really exciting you? I've seen uh, climate tech and energy uh, have been picked out. Is it around that area where you're seeing real innovation at the moment? Yes, very much so. I think at the, at the risk of, of, of repeating some of that, I think climate tech is is very strong. Clean energy, particularly strong. You know, we, in fact, we've just had a one of the biggest campaigns ever, a green lithium, which is all about extracting lithium for EV batteries. You know, you know that's a very B two B thing. Like that's the kind of thing you you wouldn't really think going to a retail audience would be backing mining for lithium. And yet it was enormous. I mean, we're talking investing by the, in the thousands, you know, a uh, total of what, 4.4 million went into that campaign. It was, 
um, you know, that wouldn't happen in a world where people didn't connect with the the thesis, with the, you know, sustainability and the importance of moving to um, electric vehicles, for example. That part of investing is very powerful. I mean, there's Ripple, for example, that is very much about, you know, democratizing access to wind energy and allowing people to to invest in and then get rewards from uh, the energy that uh, the the if you like the dividends or returns from uh, the energy produced by uh, by wind, I, you know I'd say those are big. You know, food and beverage doesn't ever seem to slow down as a as a big. It's probably our biggest category of investing. Whether we're talking about you know the boom period of 2021, for example, or or now, it's there are still people who are innovating. Some of it in a marketing sense, some of it in a health health sense and trying to uh, bring products to market there i'm looking at cape see if that was very that was very thorough and very clear before joining cedars jeff kaliski ran picsolve a company which produced the photographs you can buy at theme parks after going on a ride before that he ran multimap one of the online mapping services that emerged in the 1990s after the birth of the internet he steered Multimap through intense competition and the dot-com crash before selling the business to Microsoft for $50 million in 2007 as it looked to build an alternative to Google Maps. Jeff Kaliski then worked at Microsoft for four years before joining Pixolve. He became chief executive of Cedars in 2017. It was a lot of fun because it had really difficult hurdles that we had to overcome. I think I did my MBA, I'd done consulting. Uh, I was introduced to it by actually this professor, John Bates, he knew the founder. And and what talked to me very much was the case that although it was navigation and maps, and there's a certain nerdiness attached to mapping. And at the time, all the excitement in the dot-com boom were for really alternative models. Like, you know, can you disintermediate advertising companies by advertising direct to people on their computer screens. There was a company called alladvantage.com, which I think had raised a colossal sum of money and was hiring people at, you know, a hundred a month or something. And, and so there were some models that kind of really seemed sexy in the moment. Uh, looking at mapping, my fundamental belief was navigation will never go away. Like forever, people will have to navigate from place to place. What's interesting is how this changes. And I think saying this now feels kind of prescient in the sense that when I spoke to the founder, he said there are three things happening. He said satellite navigation devices, which were mostly in boats, are getting smaller and smaller. He said wireless protocols are now standardizing with GSM to allow mobile telephony. And the internet provides a global client server architecture. And you throw these three things together and someday, someday you'll have a device in your hand that tells you where you are and what's around you. And that was in the late 90s. And of course, now it's like, obviously, like, I'm, I'm, you know, you pull out your phone like 17 times a day to do exactly that. And so, so that grabbed me, even though it was six people in a small windowless office in Covent Garden, you know, with this very techie founder, you know, and that was the mission. Now, nine months later, the dot-com bubble burst. There was a global economic recession. All the money for investing in growth businesses had dried up and all the people who had just raised their money were now trying to take what limited market was available so that they survived. 
And of course, being in the UK at the time, it was the most mature internet market outside the US. So where did everybody go? The UK. So MapQuest, which was owned by America Online at the time, which had more money than anybody, parked their tanks on our lawn and set up an office in the UK and across Europe. Vicinity, similar, raised, I think, 190 million on NASDAQ, also did the same thing in the UK. Mapparama in France, set up in the UK. Map24 in Germany, set up in the UK. So we had everybody land on our front door. And again, I go back to management. So the best time to take market share is during a recession, but you do need to be last person standing when the smoke clears. It's probably a story in itself. And that was in 2001. So we really stuck to our guns, again, connected the microeconomics of what we do to everything that we did because prof, you know, we only had so much cash and we had only ever raised $3 million. And these other companies had significantly more, like <laughs> MapQuest, I mean, significantly more. And I remember telling all my team at the time saying, look, it's not about how deep your pockets are. It's about the quality of your execution. By 2003, MapQuest had closed all of its offices returned to the US. Vicinity had closed all of its offices and was bought by Microsoft. Um, Mapparama went bust. Uh, Map24 went back to Germany. And we had no competition for two years. You know, the sort of sense of sort of indefeatability that the team had at that point was tremendous that we had kind of made it through. And, you know, I think that probably was an important part of defining me and my management style and the art of the possible in the face of the impossible, which which I absolutely loved. Very, very close bonded team, uh, obviously, as you'd imagine as a result. Uh, so when we went out fundraising in 2007, we actually, we had been approached by Microsoft in 2005 after two years of successful growth. Um, and then they said, no, actually, we think we're just going to compete with you. And then by 2007, to their credit, a chap by the name of Chris Sampson called me and he says, we've tried to beat you and we can't. So we'd like to buy you. And I thought that was so honorable. Like, I mean, he could have said anything. He could have said, we're Microsoft. So screw you. You know, we've got money. But he was, you know, the whole discussion with Microsoft was hugely professional. Sachin Nadella, who's now the CEO, as you know, was the head of online engineering. So I had to fly to be interviewed by him before I was appointed to run all of mapping for Microsoft. Uh, so I worked alongside him for a few years, which was great. But that, you know, that was a phenomenal journey because it was, you know, all the challenges of economic craziness. It was, you know, living on, I think our bank balance dropped to $35,000 at one point with a team of 30. It was founders going through their their journey of you know, letting go, not letting go. And I'm grateful that I can say I have a very good relationship with both of them today, uh, which is marvelous. But that um, that was probably the forming journey for me for, for everything I've done since. Is there anything you know now that you wish you'd known when you were starting off in your career? Do you mean the kind of startup career or life career? Well, I guess a bit of both. I mean, when, when you started out uh, and then when you started out at um, Multimap as well. I think that... Um, I should have a quick answer. That doesn't have to be. Plenty of people don't. I, so. I think. I, I think. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a great look. It's a great question from a career perspective. I I've been very fortunate with the opportunities that I've been able to kind of step into. And I'm, you know, in fact, somebody asked me last night at a drinks thing. They said, you know, tell me about your worst job. I had to pause and think. I was like, I don't think I had a terrible one. Um, if if anything, I guess it would be that. Well, actually, just I'm going to say two things here. One is that 
in some ways, not knowing some of the challenges that I was going to face. Like if I'd known them, I might not have done the thing. But once you're in, like you got to do the thing. Like you got to go through those hurdles. Otherwise, what are you made of? So I think somehow there's a sort of power that comes from not knowing. But the more you succeed, the more you're prepared to step into the unknown because you realize that actually you have, there are more there are more levers at your disposal to use than you think there are. You just have to kind of work at it. And probably the second thing is about the compassion and toughness. It's something that is kind of built into me. Um, my parents were almost, although they were similar in many ways, my father was the mathematician, very structured, very logical, also compassionate, but my mother, uh, you know, I was off the charts high in EQ, very compassionate woman. And I I think I've got both of those, this desire for structure and this sort of compassion for the teams that I work with. And I've decided that even though there have been times where I've been put under pressure by boards or by chairman or whatever to take quick and tough actions, I've, for me, it had to be consistent with who I am and my values. And so, you know, it's it's about how do I do sometimes difficult things, but always do it with the the person's sort of humanity first, you know, where they are on their journey, what what they're doing. It makes it a bit harder, but actually I always end up feeling better about it afterwards. And I think, I suppose if I'd known that up front starting, I wouldn't have questioned myself as much as I did during those difficult moments where I was being pressured to take a harder line at times. But uh, in the end, I, there aren't too many engagements I've I regret because I tended to go back to, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't not be me. So if that's, if that's an answer to your question. You've been listening to Business Leader with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For more business news and analysis, check out businessleader.co.uk or sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch, where you'll get business news, ideas, and expertise sent to you throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.